CFFC, KSW, and Fury FC all go down this weekend as well. And if you're looking for a place to do all your researching and have all the fighter links for every fighter competing on those upcoming cards in one place, there's only one place to do it. You got the MMA Fight Archive link in the description below. Seven day free trial to check it out and see why 40 other members have joined up over the last two months. They see the value in it and they see the fact that that's the best place to assure that you're getting as many fights as possible for every single opponent. I am the best in the world at doing this thing. That's why industry professionals trust your boy to get that information for them and get those fight links for them. Even coaches, managers, commentators, they come to your boy to do all those things because they know I know where to get all of this stuff. So if you're looking for that MMA fight archive is where you'll find it. Seven day free trial. Check the link in the, in the description below and let's get right into the episode. Welcome to another episode of the MMA Lockcast. I'm your host, Manpreet, aka MMA Lock of the Night, and your boy on social media at MMALOTN. This week, we're going over UFC Vegas 77, headlined by a women's bantamweight bout between Holly Holm, former champion, and Myra Bueno Silva. It's very important for the bantamweight division, especially considering the recent retirement of Amanda Nunes, which leaves the bantamweight title vacant now. You got Juliana Pena, and um, there's another fighter escaping my mind right now at this moment in time who are trying to vie for that title. Raquel Pennington, sorry. Juliana Pena and Raquel Pennington, who are claiming that they should fight for the vacant strap next. But Holly Holm could definitely throw her name in the hat, especially considering that she has name value and she's a former champion. If she can pick up a win this weekend, it might spell title shot for her. Who knows? Co-main event has a banger of a middleweight matchup between Albert Duraev and the Iron Turtle, Jun Young Park. Can't wait for that. And not to mention the highly anticipated debut amongst the diehards as that Maxim on the prelims going up against Tyson Nam, who's coming off of being finished for the first time in 10 years. Fun fight sprinkled out throughout the card for the diehards. I know in comparison to UFC 290 last week, it pales. There's obviously no comparison, but for the diehards, we got more fights to go over, and that's always a great thing. Before we get into the episode, I always love to go over the predictions from the last week, and we went 3-0 on Lock of the Night predictions over the UFC Cage Warrior, or sorry, um, LFA and PFL Europe Series. We go 3 0. That pushes the uh, lock of the night record now for the year uh, f- to 57 and 17. That's a 77% hit rate. Absolutely doing crazy there. Very happy with that performance thus far. Trying to get to 80%. We'll get there shortly. The dog of the night on the well, the lock knife for the UFC was Vitor Petrino. Felt pretty good about that one. Again, you guys know me. I don't mind paying chalk. I'm trying to give you guys the the picks that hit the most consistently. And at a certain point, obviously, you got to throw odds into consideration as well. But you guys come to me for consistency in terms of consistent picks that you can rely on to put on your bet slip, whether you bet on it straight or throw into a parlay that you know that that leg is going to hit. And so far this year, 77% hitting rate through the UFC and regional promotions that I cover on the Patreon as well. Dog of the night not at 77%. We took an L this week, and as I, uh, I didn't feel really good about many underdogs, even though plenty of them ended up winning. Uh, the only dog spot that I felt good about was the over two and a half in the Crute and Menafield fight. I expected to see just as much grappling as we did in the last matchup, but Crute got a little bit lackadaisical, left his neck open, and ended up getting it snatched and lo- lost that fight in the first round, or second round, I should say. So that ends up coming to a crash. So very unfortunate loss there. We... Picked up a PFL underdog as Greet Ikut ended up winning for us at plus 100. Very happy to hit that. LFA, we took an L on that one. Who it was escaping my mind at the moment at at this time. I believe there was a couple of them that I felt good about. Only one of them ended up hitting, but I ended up picking the wrong one as my dog of the night prediction. That brings our dog of the night prediction for the year to 33 and 42, a 44% hit rate. But we've had some juicy underdogs in there, which means we're we're likely still in the, the... the the plus money for that what i or sorry the the profit for that what i i, I want to hone in the, on 
hone in on that real quick because as you guys know i have a segment dropping every single day of the week and last week i kind of noticed that the main event mayhem is not doing the greatest so what i'm going to be doing on wednesdays instead now is going to be doing a top three dog of the night candidates video just like i do my top three lock of the night candidates video so make sure you guys look for that on wednesday and we can hone in on the dog of the night and i can give you an accurate reading of how much uh or how much profit we're in from the dog of the night predictions alone i'll calculate that before the wednesday video and make sure to give you guys that information um also, next week, there's no regional events this week that I'm going over personally, but next week we got LFA and Cage Warriors. Obviously, UFC's in London next week, and Cage Warriors loves do doing events on the same weekend as uh, the UFC. Uh, so I'll have breakdowns for those cards on the Patreon. Only place to find that link in the description below. My personal Patreon, the Lock of the Night Patreon. Make sure you guys check that out. Still over 180 members on there. Appreciate everybody, single, every single one of you guys on there as well. The last plug I want to do real quick, uh, Godzilla wins still giving me an opportunity to go out there and write articles for a website i do a main event breakdown on wednesdays and then i do the three best money line bets on thursdays all which can be found on godzillawins.com you can also find direct links to those uh, breakdowns in the description below once they've been posted all right we got plenty of fights to get through for this weekend's card so let's not waste any more time let's get right into it Kicking things off in the bantamweight division, we got six and five Ashley Evans Smith going up against seven and two Eileen Perez. Starting off on the Ashley Evans Smith side of things, who's coming off nearly a three-year-long layoff from reasonings I am unaware of at this moment in time. I've done a little bit of digging and was unable to come up with anything other than the fact that she just wanted uh, to find the fire again, it seemed. You know, she wanted to change a lot of things in her life in anticipation of this matchup, which is very important for her, considering the fact that if she takes another loss here, she likely spells the uh, end of her UFC career. Before her last fight against Norma Dumont, she was coming off nearly a two-year-long layoff, and that was a fight where she opened up as the underdog, but got a ton of love from betters and the public, pushing her to a minus-150 favorite by fight time. Unfortunately for her, Norma Dumont, who was relatively unknown at the time, was able to go out there and put on a boxing clinic against Ashley Evans-Smith, knocking her down two times in that matchup, going on to win a decision victory. There were a couple of 30-25 cards out there in terms of the media and fan scores, but it was a one-sided beatdown in the striking realm. Ashley Evans-Smith comes from a wrestling background, but mainly relies on her output and volume in the striking realm to normally get her hand raised. I believe that she should believe a little bit more in her wrestling, although her 23% accuracy in takedowns probably is deterring her from doing that. I'm curious to see what this time off has done for her, and if at 36 years old she can go out there and get back in the win column and possibly save her spot on the UFC roster. On the flip side for Eileen Perez, she's had a couple ups and downs in terms of being able to get fights booked. Her UFC debut actually was a short notice replacement who actually, it was Stephanie Yeager that replaced on short notice as Eileen Perez was supposed to go up against Zara Farron, a completely different stylistical matchup and Perez ended up coming up short against Yeager who was an Olympic level judoka who was able to, you know, get the takedowns and then eventually get the submission in the second round. Perez was scheduled to fight in February against Haley Cowan, but Cowan was forced out of their fight due to a fight day sickness and Aileen Perez was put on the shelf. Now here she is trying to get her first win inside the octagon, utilizing her aggressive style. She utilizes decent takedowns and good top control, but even on the feet, with the lack of striking mechanics that she has, she still makes it work by closing the distance, putting big power on her opponents, and trying to put them away. It's tough to trust somebody who's been looking as bad as Ashley Evans-Smith and now coming off of a nearly three-year-long layoff, especially against a girl like Eileen Perez, who we know is going to follow a similar game plan to what Norma Dumont did the last time to Ashley. Forward pressure, put punches on her, put power on her, and she might be strong enough to keep this fight upright and nullify the technical wrestling advantage that Ashley might have in this matchup, allowing Perez to just stay in her face and just put big damage on her and win by decision. It's a tough one to call because 
Eileen is just as much of an unknown as Norma Dumont was back then. When Norma, I believe that was only Norma's second fight in the UFC. This is the second fight for Eileen as well. And we've seen her come up short against uh, Stephanie Yeager, a much better grappler. But Ashley Evans, uh, 36 years old, long ass layoff. Very tough to trust her in the spot, but also very tough to trust a raw prospect like Eileen Perez as well. But I'm still going to go with the Argentinian Eileen Perez. I think she batters her way to a decision victory. Next up in the lightweight division, we have the return of 6-2 Alex Munoz. He goes up against 17-6 Carl Deaton. Starting off on the Alex Munoz side, he's coming off of nearly two-year layoff where he was rehabbing his ACL and coming back from surgery. Apparently, earlier in his career, he had another ACL injury, but came back a little bit too soon, and it ended up spelling disaster for him. So he thought he'd take more than enough time this time around to rehab his knee, make sure it's fully ready to go, and get his strength and conditioning on on course so that he can have a successful return because he's already 0-2 in the UFC and if he goes out there and earns a third loss or drops a third fight more than likely he finds himself outside of the UFC so I don't blame him for taking the time off and trying to make sure he has everything intact before making his return he's a solid wrestler who originally started off at team takedown in Texas alongside Johnny Hendricks former welterweight champion but Alex Munoz eventually moved up to team alpha male in Sacramento because their head coach or sorry their wrestling coach and he's obviously picked up some tips and tricks in terms of the striking because the striking is not looking too bad either i personally thought he deserved to win the decision against luis pena in his last matchup unfortunately judges uh, favored luis pena in rounds two and three and it ended up giving it to him but munoz still has some good potential even though he's 33 years old i think his wrestling base and improving striking will definitely be difficult for a lot of fighters to deal with on the flip side for Carl Deaton, he was a 24 fight or sorry, 22 fight veteran before coming to the UFC and ended up losing his short notice debut to Joe Selecki earlier this year. That night, he was unable to deal with the grapple-heavy approach of Selecki as Selecki continuously got dominant positions, but it was ultimately at the ending of the second round that he was able to sink in the rear naked choke and get the victory there. Deaton has a decent all overall game, but I think the best part of his game is his experience. The fact that he's been in there for, with a lot of other fighters. However, you see just scanning from his record and even watching the tape that he comes up against guys that are somewhat mediocre, somewhat abysmal. His biggest win comes against Justin Janes after Janes got released from the UFC, but we all know that Janes is really not that good either, more so of just a power puncher. Deaton really needs to round out the rest of his game if he hopes to have success, but Let's see if his experience can come into play this weekend against a fighter that he has over 15 fights of experience over. Another fighter coming back from an extremely long layoff two years off for Munoz, but I feel better about him than I do Ashley Evans-Smith from earlier in the card. I feel like Munoz can do a great job with his wrestling, which is going to be too much for Deaton, and then I think the improvements in his striking realm will allow him to be competitive until he eventually gets that distance closed and gets his hand around Deaton and roughs him up in the clinch, drags him to the ground, and does his work from on top. I'm very curious to see how the strength and conditioning will help Munoz here, but I think it's only going to do good things for him, and considering what kind of specimen he was even before this industry, or before this injury, I'm expecting to see a much better version of him this weekend as well. Give me Alex Munoz by decision, and again, minus 135, that's a crazy line, but I can understand just because of the long layoff for him, but if he comes back you know, looking the way I expect him to look, this minus 135 is going to be an absolute gift and a half. Give me Munoz. Heading down to the flyweight division, we got 21-13-1 Tyson Nam going up against 16-0 UFC newcomer Azat Maxim. Starting off on the Tyson Nam side of things, last time around, he got finished for the first time in 10 years. Absolutely crazy considering that he had gone that long without being finished but Bruno Silva landed a perfect front kick up the middle to the chin that dropped Nam and from there Bruno Silva was eventually able to work to the back and sink in the rear naked choke but Tyson Nam has fought some very high level opponents in the past especially over the last 10 years and hadn't gotten finished but it was just Bruno Silva's perfectly timed front kick that started off that finishing sequence you gotta wonder if Tyson Nam who's going to be 40 in about three months is starting to catch up to his age or, you know, being at flyweight, it's very tough to be successful on the other side of 35. But Tyson Nam is a guy that still goes out there and tries to showcase his knockout power, just like he did against Ode Osborne in his last victory. 
Tyson Nam, that's kind of his game. He just sticks by that. And usually that's pretty detrimental because if he's not able to get the knockout, he ends up losing via decision like he did against Match Now. But if it ends up paying off for him, he's able to knock out guys viciously like he did against Osborne, like he did against Rivera, and like he did against Zaruk Adeshev. But at a certain point, that's going to start to run out for him as the speed and ref- reflexes start to decline, especially at the flyweight division. His opponent this weekend is a is a beast and a half. As that maxim, like I said, coming in with a 16-0 record, only 28 years old. Out of all the tape that I watched on this guy, it was very difficult to find many moments to see him on the losing end of a fight, even losing a round or anything like that. This guy's a very patient striker and he utilizes his in and out movement very well to try to damage his opponents on counters. He also has a relentless takedown game, but he does a great job in terms of chaining uh, takedowns together or just giving up on takedowns and waiting for another perfect opportunity to spring upon himself so that he can go out there and take his opponents down. His cardio looks very good as well and I just think he's going to be a great addition to the UFC flyweight roster. I've done some work with his manager in the past and i know that the ufc has been eyeing this kid for a while now so it's cool to finally see him make it straight to the ufc and not have to take the contender series route i believe the flyweight division has a problem on its hands with as that maxim this kid is an absolute beast and i think he has tyson nam beat pretty much anywhere but obviously we know nam has that nuclear option but it does not hit that often especially with him reaching 40 years old very soon i expect maxim to utilize very good in and out pressure utilize his kicks from distance counter effectively but then get this fight to the ground and do good damage from on top and control where he might be able to eventually get that finish I'm not 100% certain because it might be an anomaly as to why Nam got finished last time around, but Maxim is a very tough customer, and at 15-0, I believe he is a very, very solid addition to the flyweight division, and I think he's going to start his career off with the bang here with the finish, probably via TKO over Tyson Nam. Back down to the lightweight division we go as we have 7-2 Evan Elder going up against 10-2 Genero Valdez. Starting off on the Evan Elder side, who is a Kill Cliff FC product, and you can see those improvements as he, in his game as he continues to progress through his career. He came in on short notice initially against Preston Parsons uh, in his first UFC matchup and came up short in that fight as it seemed like his gas tank was starting to fail him. In his last fight against Nazim Sadiqov, that was a spot where I had him as my dog of the night prediction, and it looked like it was about to come to fruition, but in the opening seconds of the third round, Sadikov lands a beautiful knee that opens up a fight-ending cut on Evan Elder's eyebrow, and the doctor comes in and stops the fight. Elder was up two rounds to nothing on all three judges' scorecards and was five minutes away from picking up his first UFC win, but it was not meant to be. He utilizes a great uh, combination of power striking, moving forward, and using takedowns to overwhelm his opponents. He throws everything into his strikes, but it looks like his cardio is really coming into play here where he's able to keep it up for a solid 12 to 15 minutes so that he can go out there and either get the finish or pick up a decision victory as well. Like I said, he's only 26 years old and trading at Killcliffe FC, you can see the improvements he's making and I think he's primed to get his first UFC victory this weekend. But he has a tough and rugged opponent across from him this weekend. Another guy who's 0-2 in the UFC, Gennaro Valdez, came up short against Natan Levy last time around. That was a fight where Valdez seemed to break his foot uh, in the second round, but managed to still fight through to the third round and uh, ended up seeing the scorecards. But it was Natan Levy's patient approach and eventually his grappling that got him the win over the wild man Gennaro Valdez. Valdez kind of lacks in some technical aspects of the game, but he likes to go out there and throw down. We saw that in his fight with Patrick White on the contender series, where he almost got finished by Patrick, but he was able to muster up the courage, come back in the second round, and pull off a knockout victory of his own to earn his UFC contract. That gave him an opportunity to fight Matt Frivola in his UFC debut, but he got brutally knocked out halfway through that first round. Gennaro Valdez is a fighter's fighter, but I believe the technical aspects of his games and the shortcomings in those parts of his game will likely be the reason he doesn't have a long stint in the UFC. I feel this is a great spot for Elvin Elder to go out there and get his first win in the UFC. I believe he's the better striker here, and I think his durability is good enough to 
you know, get into a little bit of a war at times with Valdez and maybe even find his own knockout. However, I think he's going to end up playing this thing safely, dragging it to the ground if things ever get too bad. But that could open up positions for him to eventually get a dominant position and get a TKO victory as well. I really like Elder. I think this kid is a, you know, a budding prospect, even though he's 0-2 in the UFC so far. Things just haven't gone his way. They weren't really lined up, but I feel he's got everything good to go now. Killcliffe FC behind his back as well. I'm 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 fully on the Evan Elder trainer. I think that this is a spectacular matchup for him to go out there and put a bang and a statement on so that people start taking notice. Next up in the featherweight division, we got 9-2 Austin Lingo going up against 19-6 Melquizal Costa. Starting off on the Lingo side, he's coming off of a fight where he came up short against Nate Landwehr. Now, that was a fight where he started off pretty well, as all three judges gave him the first round in that fight against Landwehr, and I was feeling pretty good about my dog of the night prediction that night. However, it seemed like the pace and the eventual jab of Nate Landwehr got to Lingo at some point in the 6th or 7th minute of that fight. We saw the body language of Lingo really start to change and Landwehr smelt that blood in the water and started to swarm, eventually getting the ground position that he needed to pull off the submission of victory. Lingo normally is a tight, crisp boxer that loves to stalk his opponents and put big power combinations on them. But it was something weird about that landward fight that, you know, we saw him kind of take his foot off the uh, gas and be a little bit too overwhelmed with the uh, type of output and and strikes that landward was throwing. We saw Lingo at his best in the fight prior to that, which was a fight that was actually live for him when he fought Luis Saldana. He came up short in the first round, but in the second and third rounds, his pace and pressure ended up being too much, and we saw Saldana slow down, and Lingo was able to go out there and just continue to put combinations on him and win that fight by decision. That's Lingo's game. Boxing, 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 and pressure. If you're able to dance around him, you might be able to have some success if your cardio can hold up, unlike Luis Saldana. His opponent this week in Costa made a short notice UFC debut earlier this year against Thiago Moises. That was after he had picked up a win in an LFA main event slot where he did some good work in the first two rounds but eventually knocked out his opponent in the third round. He's had some slip-ups throughout his career but he has 25 professional fights under his belt and he's only coming into his second UFC fight. He seems to be a wild striker on the feet that loves to throw down and also likes to utilize his kicks from distance to try to keep his opponents at bay. He doesn't often look to use his grappling, but defensively speaking, he's not too shabby with his BJJ brown belt. But I really think that it's just his style of wide winging shots on the feet and that kicking style that could eventually get him some wins against a lower level or at least lower half of this featherweight division. Austin Lingo could absolutely be successful in this matchup by crashing the pocket consistently and landing his combination striking. However, I believe that Costa has a good enough footwork game, you know, good enough speed, great kicking game as well to stay safe at distance, utilize his speed, and utilize his distance management to just touch up Austin Lingo en route to a decision victory. I think this ends up looking like the uh, the Austin Lingo and Luis Saldana fight, like that first round, but I think that Costa has the cardio to go the full 15 minutes, unlike Luis Saldana was able to. So give me Costa here. I think he paints a picture um, and, you know, leg kicks his way to a decision victory. Next up in the women's strawweight division, we got 6-0 Victoria Dudakova going up against 6-4 Estela Nunes. Starting off on the Dudakova side, who earned her spot on the UFC roster through the Dana White Contender Series realm earlier or late last year. But uh, in that fight, or at least prior to that fight, she had a severe knee injury, yet she was able to battle through it and still pick up the decision victory over Maria Silva in a fight where she found herself as a plus 250 underdog. She utilized the takedown heavy approach, sneaked in some sneaky trips as well to get that top position and ride it out. I believe it was 1-1 going into that final frame and Dudakova dug deep to be able to get that dominant position against Silva and ride it out to a decision victory. Dana normally doesn't hand out to uh, contracts to people that win by decision, but he saw that Dudakova was compromised but still managed to pick up the victory, especially considering that she was an underdog in that matchup. She seems to have some solid skill and solid promise, especially considering that she's only 24 years old. So now that she has a full training camp and is fully prepared and rehabbed for this matchup, I'm very excited for her UFC debut. On the flip side, for Estela Nunes, she's riding a three-fight losing streak since joining the UFC ranks. 
It's not often that you get to see somebody actually fight for a fourth time after starting their career 0-3 with the promotion. But there is something that the UFC sees with her and we'll see if she can actually come through and prove them right and pick up a victory this weekend. It seems to be the same case over and over for her though. She starts off hot and then falls off a cliff somewhere around that second round and that's where her opponents are able to take over, win by decision like Sam Hughes did or go out there and finish her in the second or third round like Yasmin Yaragui and Ariani Carnalozzi were able to. She looks like a top 15 fighter in that first round. The way that she uses her footwork, speed, and striking, but it's just can she keep that up for 15 minutes to go out there and actually beat these women that'll get her into the rankings and get her into the spot that she believes she deserves to be. I get Estela Nunes can be very dangerous in the early going, but I feel like a girl like Dudikova will do a great job, or I should say a woman like Dudikova. I just want to give her her respect that she deserves. Um, I think she can do a good enough job in terms of staying safe in that early going, you know, clenching up when she needs to, slowing this fight down, wearing on the gas tank of Nunes, and then taking over in the second and third round. I'm going to be honing in on that round three slash decision prop that FanDuel likes to drop for this matchup because I believe that Dudikova can wear on her, drag her into deep waters, possibly finish her late, or at least pick up a decision victory. Again, it's going to be a little bit of a nail-biter early, and you could possibly get a good live entry on Dudikova going into the second round, considering that Nunez normally has a great first round against all of her opponents. But, you know, minus 200, not too bad of an entry anyway. But if you want to just put a little bit on her before the fight and then add a little bit more after round one if you get a better price, you can do that as well. But I think that Dudikova has this one wrapped up. I think she either gets that third-round finish or wins via decision. Next up in the featherweight division, we got 12-3 Tucker Lutz going up against 7-2 Meltzik Bagdazarian. Starting off on the Lutz side, he's riding a two-fight losing streak after picking up a win in his UFC debut over Kevin Aguilar. He has fallen short to Pat Sabatini, who used a grapple-heavy approach to nullify him and win that fight by decision, and then he ended up losing to Daniel Pineda in a fight where it seemed like Pineda's aggressiveness eventually caught up to Lutz, and he was able to get that tap-out victory in the second round. Lutz, normally a striker that likes to blend his takedowns behind it, seems to have not really getting close to that potential that a lot of people believe for him after coming off the contender series he's a tank of a human being standing at five foot eight with a 72 inch reach but very bulky and strong that's how he's able to get his takedowns and control his opponents from that top position but it seems like he can be broken especially if he can't get his wrestling going or if he's unable to really get an effective striking game going his opponent this weekend is going to be bringing that striking, considering that Bagdasarian has a legit striking background. He actually made his professional MMA debut back in 2014, and he ended up losing, hanging it up for a little bit, and going over to the striking sports like kickboxing and boxing, before eventually coming back to the MMA world and... Dude, I don't even know what to say, blasted through his next four opponents all within a combined 60 seconds. He just dispatched of so many of them so quickly. I think two of them were even under 10 seconds, just showcasing how quick, explosive, and powerful a guy like Bagdasarian can be. He eventually got that shot on the contender series where he went one and one against Bazookia going into the third round and then dug deep and was able to land the more damaging blows to get his hand raised that evening and earn himself a contract to the UFC. He started off with a bang against Colin Anglin, landing that beautiful head kick knockout and then had a pedestrian approach against Bruno Souza in a fight that he won by decision. The Joshua Koulibao fight, he was doing very well. Won that first round on all three judges' scorecards and had a minor slip-up that Koulibaly was able to take advantage of, latched onto the rear naked choke, and we saw Koulibaly take home that victory. I'm sure Bagdasarian will be thinking about that slip for a long time, but I'm hoping, or at least knowing, that he'll go in there and not make that mistake once again in his next matchup so that he can get back into the winner's circle. I think we're going to see a very pissed off Melsic Bagdasarian. I think we're going to see a guy that knew he should have won that last fight had it not been for that minor slip up. And I think we're going to see him go out there and just take out that aggression on Tucker Lutz. Does he get the finish? I'm not 100% certain. I think he's just dead set on getting his hand raised, getting that double paycheck. You know what I mean? Going out there, doing what he does best putting his combinations together, putting the power and being the hammer the entire time as Tucker reacts to what he's going to be doing. 
Tucker might have some success with some of his wrestling and maybe even some of his striking, but I fully expect Bagdasarian to go out there and just really stifle Lutz. And we've seen Lutz break in his last fight against Daniel Pineda. I feel like he could potentially break here under Bagdasarian as well. That doesn't necessarily mean that you'll end up getting finished, but I think that might end up, you know, making him gun shy and trigger shy where he's not really throwing as much or even shooting takedowns. So give me Bagdasarian. Feeling pretty good about him as well. And I think he wins this fight. Low confidence, I'm going to say by decision. Next up, we got another lightweight matchup between 8-1 Nazim Sadiqov going up against 13-5 Terrence McKinney. Starting off on the Nazim Sadiqov side, he got pretty lucky last time around considering he was 0-2 or at least down two rounds going into the third round of his matchup against Evan Elder. Luckily, he landed a perfectly placed knee that split open uh, Evan Elder and caused that fight to get stopped, and he was able to pick up the win via TKO that night. It's weird that they never decided to run that fight back, considering both of the guys are fighting on the same card this weekend, but Nazim wanted to move on, and he gets Terrence McKinney across from him this weekend. Sadikov trains out of Saralongo, and you can see Aljamain Sterling in his corner more often than not, as he likes to go out there and try to, you know, really... Uh, you know, he, he doesn't fight like Aljamain. He has a solid striking game where he has good punches, good power, good combinations. He has a decent grappling game as well. But I've definitely seen him hurt and put in bad positions. But luckily for him, his wrestling has bailed him out of those spots. However, the level of competition he's been defeating on the regional scene, a little bit sketchy, which is why I think we saw him stumble a little bit in his first fight in the UFC. And I think we'll see over the next couple of fights whether he actually deserves to be at this level. Don't get me wrong, the guy has a good skill set. I'm just wondering if he has had enough enough proper grooming before he ended up making it to this level in the MMA game. On the flip side for Terrence McKenney, he's coming off of a loss to Ismael Bonfin, who was able to finish him in the second round of his matchup. Terrence McKenney has this crazy stat in terms of, I believe, 17 of his 18 fights have finished inside the distance, and he just, or sorry, 17 of his 18 fights have finished inside the first round. You know what? Let me just confirm that number real quick because it is truly a sight to behold. You know, we have guys that like to go out there and get these uh, finishes often, but we don't see a guy keeping a streak, especially a guy like Terrence McKenney, and sticking true to it. So the number that we actually have here is, uh, all right, uh, crazy winning streak, uh, or sorry, crazy streak of fights that have hit under one and a half rounds. 17 of 18 fights have gone under one and a half. 15 of his 18 have finished in round one. I believe one of his fights actually went into the second or third round, or sorry, third round, but still, he's never seen the judges' scorecards. And that's why I like to bank on it. And that's why I think we start to get these chalky numbers on his under one and a half. But I think with that gas tank issue, a lot of people are down on him, which is why he's probably coming in as an underdog in this matchup. Does he have what it takes to spring the upset? The obvious play is always the under one and a half, just because of the stats that I laid out in the Terrence McKinney breakdown that I just did. But I feel like McKinney is live in this matchup. Like, I get it. Cardio? Suspect. But just honing in on that round one, round one KO, or even round one subprop is probably the best way to go about it. I'm okay with taking his money line as well, but if I want to be a little greedier, I'm expecting that first round finish from McKenny here. I think he's a very live dog. I think Sadikov is very hittable, and his durability looks a little bit shaky to me, if I'm being honest. He hasn't been hit by somebody with the explosivity, power, and speed of Terrence McKenny, and I think he's going to feel that this weekend and likely not recover from it. Give me T-Rex to pull off the upset here if he is still the underdog by the time this video comes out. But I think that McKinney has a very good chance to pull this off. Give me round one McKinney. I'm going to just go round one McKinney. You know what I mean? He can pull off the sub or he can pull off the knockout. I think he's capable of both, but I'm going to go round one. Next up, we have our fourth and last lightweight bout on the card between 13-1 Otman Azaitar going up against 11-1 Francisco Prado. Starting off on the Azaitar side, he took his first professional loss last time around when he went to war with Matt Frivola and ended up on the losing end. Azaitar is a round one or bust kind of fighter essentially as he likes to go out there and knock his opponents out. He has big power in his hands and he doesn't often look to get much other of his game going. Not often looking for takedowns but more often than not just stalking his opponents and trying to put his big power on them. That's how he was able to pull off fantastic and spectacular knockouts over Timu Pakalin and Kama Worthy through his first two UFC fights. 
However, he finally ran into somebody that was willing to throw down with him and ended up coming up on the losing end, like I said. Zaitar is one of those guys at 33 years old, coming from a wealthy family, doesn't really need to fight, but just chooses to because he really enjoys it, nor does he really need the money either. So he likes to go out there and try to put on exciting and explosive knockouts, and I think he still has a couple more left in the bag before he decides to hang it up. On the flip side, we got 21-year-old Francisco Prado, who made a short-notice UFC debut against Jamie Malarkey earlier this year. That was a fight where he finally faced somebody with an overall better game. Malarkey was able to land some good strikes on the feet and eventually get the fight to the ground where he was able to stay away from the dangerous knockout power and finishing abilities of Francisco Prado. Prado normally went out there and finished everybody that was ahead of him on the regional scene, but there is a clear difference in terms of uh, talent and experience and and just, just veterancy from the, the regional level to what he's going to be facing in the UFC. Even though he came in with a squeaky clean 11-0 record, I just don't know if he had enough experience before having to take the step up and face the better guys that he's going to be facing in his first couple UFC fights. He might be better served to just go back to the regional scene and eventually make it back to the UFC. But he has a one-dimensional fighter across from him this weekend. If he can get any victories in the UFC, he needs to get his hand raised this weekend. I'm kind of surprised that Azaitar is the underdog here. He has the experience, he has the knockout power, and Prado still is relatively inexperienced considering the level of competition he's been fighting in the past. So give me the underdog odds here on Otman, but I know, I know I'm not dumb. I feel like he's one of those round one robust guys, kind of like Terrence McKinney in the previous fight. So I think honing in on that round one prop for him would not be a bad idea. I feel like he'll be able to land that big knockout power here on Prado. And even if he doesn't, maybe Prado's the one able to take him out. So the under one and a half, not too bad of a spot either. But I'm going to go with the dog. I feel like Prado is not ready for the explosivity and power that Azaitar possesses. And he didn't face that in his last matchup against Malarkey. He faced an overall fighter there. He's fighting a knockout artist here, something that he hasn't seen at all. I mean, he's been facing some of these very low-level guys on the, the Latin America regional scene, but not a guy that's going to put the power on him like a Zaytar is able to. So give me a Zaytar by knockout, but under one and a half, probably the best way to go about it. Next up in the women's featherweight division, which is still having fights for some reason, even though Amanda Nunes has retired, we got 9-2 Norma Dumont going up against 5-1 Chelsea Chandler. Starting off on the Norma Dumont side of things, she's riding a two-fight winning streak after putting on a very lackadaisical performance against Macy Casson. That was a fight where it didn't seem like she really shifted into second, third, or even fourth gear by the third round, which was too late as Casson had already done enough to win the first two rounds. Unfortunately for her, she ended up losing that fight, and that you know pretty much stopped her winning streak that she had after she had lost her UFC debut against Megan Anderson. But now she's got the momentum back on her side, going out there and absolutely battering Danielle Wolf, and having a you know a little bit of a lackadaisical performance against Carol Hosa. But lucky, luckily for her, there's still enough for her to get her hand raised. She's showcasing that she has solid, striking, good combinations and can really go out there and batter her opponents just like she did against Aspen Ladd in the main event slot that she had that night. She's a solid fighter with decent all-around game and really coming into her own after coming into the UFC as a relatively unknown fighter. But I think she has what it takes to really make a run, but what kind of run can she make at featherweight considering there's no longer really a division there anymore? I doubt the UFC wants to crown another featherweight champion considering there's really nobody else. So she's going to have to get her shit together and try to go back down to bantamweight where she can actually try to make a run for the title. On the flip side this weekend, we got Chelsea Chandler, who formerly used to fight at 135 pounds, but has been taking her last couple fights up at 145, considering the UFC is looking for that. But I don't know how much more they're looking for that. She made good on her UFC debut against Yulia Stolyarenko in a very weird fight where it looked like Stolyarenko was trying to get the takedowns, but she just was so lazy with it that Chandler just was able to divert her uh, or redirect her momentum and end up in great positions against her ultimately getting that top position and raining down ground and pound to get that knockout victory or tko victory i should say she's a diaz sister in the sense that she trains out of the caesar gracie camp she trains out of stockton california and she has that demeanor about her 
she's strong, she's rough, she's tough to deal with in the clinch, but she still seems pretty raw in her overall game. She only has six professional fights and is 29 years old, and she seems to do her best work when she can get the clinch and the ground game going, but on the feet, she might get touched up by better strikers if she can't get those fundamentals and technical aspects of the game down. I feel the lack of experience that Chandler has had against legitimate competition is going to put her behind uh, in this matchup against Dumont. I feel like Dumont is the better striker and I feel she'll put together solid combinations to do very good work here against Chandler. Chandler might be able to get a takedown or two, but I don't expect her to have full control from that top position nor be able to establish a dominant enough position to get her a finish like she did in the Stoliarenko fight. So I think she's going to be struggling quite a lot while Dumont is going to be the one dishing out the damage. I feel as though that Dumont might be able to get might be able to even get a finish considering the skill gap I see in the striking rump here. Chandler might be a little bit overconfident coming into this matchup and that could get her into trouble which is why I'm going to be taking Dumont via TKO. Next up we got the heavyweights throwing down as we got the return of the big ticket Walt Harris coming in with a 13 and 10 record. He goes up against 15 and 6 Josh Parisian. Starting off on the Walt Harris side of things, he's riding a three-fight losing streak, all of which he's been finished in. It pretty much is the same thing every single time as he goes out there, has big success in the opening two, three minutes of his fight, but eventually starts to slow down and gets finished by his opponents. It's not often that you see him win by decision. Even that fight that he had against Andrei Arlovsky, which is now a no contest, that's probably the only one that I can remember from the top of my head that he won by decision. But... He often goes out there and just headhunts, looking to use his explosiveness and big power to put his opponents out. The man's 40 years old, though, and he might start slowing down, but luckily for him, he's in the heavyweight division where he might be able to squeeze out another good couple years, but he really needs a win this weekend, especially if he hopes to preserve his UFC roster spot. Losing to guys like Alistair Overeem, Alexander Volkov, and Marcin Tybura are not bad things for a heavyweight in his position, but he's got to beat a guy like Josh Parisian if he wants to prove to the UFC brass that he deserves to stick around. Speaking of Josh Parisian, he's been alternating wins and losses since making his UFC debut. Right now, he's coming off a loss to Jamal Pogues from earlier this year, where Pogues was able to land takedowns at opportune moments and get some good control time to eventually see the judges get the scorecard in his favor. Parisian did pretty good work, better than I expected, as I expected it uh, to look more so like the Dontel Mays fight, where Pogues was going to continuously get the takedown and eventually finish him in the latter half of that fight. However, Parisian did a great job in terms of eventually working back to his feet and then dishing out his own damage. There could have even been an argument that Parisian deserved to win that fight because of the amount of damage he was landing. But luckily for me, a guy that was heavily invested in Pogues that night, we got the decision to go our way. Parisian, you know, he was a pretty heavy chalk in his first couple fights. Uh, he's a, a striker that likes to be flashy at times. He doesn't have a bad uh, wrestling game either. But he seems like one of those middling heavyweights that's likely going to continue fighting guys like Parker Porter, Dontel Mays, maybe even Jake Collier in the near future and make the rest of his UFC career after uh, out of being a middling heavyweight and filling out a roster spot. When I did my write-up for this fight on my Patreon, Parisian was sitting around plus 170. Now as I'm doing the recording, he's sitting around plus 140 and it seems like the public is trying to come around to the fact that how can you trust Walt Harris at minus 200? Like it doesn't make sense. You take Walt Harris, you take Walt Harris in round one. That's the way you extract the best value out of a guy like that. But Parisian hasn't been knocked out in a very long time. He's very durable. He's taken some big shots from opponents in the past. And I feel like he'll be able to endure that early onslaught from Harris and then start to take over in rounds two or three. Again, it's a close fight early, but as this goes down into deep waters, I feel like Parisian has that extra gear to continuously put that pace, pressure, and power on Walt Harris that he could potentially either win this late or win it by decision. Unless we see a drastically different approach from Walt Harris, which is hard to tell, especially him being at 40 years old and coming off such a long layoff, I just don't know if he has what it takes to really change it up to beat a guy like Parisian outside of a first-round knockout as he's been able to get his past victories. So give me Parisian. I think, he, like I said, weathers the early storm, takes over in round two, and takes home a decision victory. Heading over to the co-main event, which goes down in the middleweight division. We got a fun one here. Between 16-4 and four, Albert Durayev and 16-5 and Junyoung Park. Starting off on the Durayev side, he bounced back successfully after getting finished by Joaquin Buckley last year. 
That was a fight where Buckley did a great job in terms of keeping the fight in the standing position, and he was able to tee off on Derive, who eventually had to pretty much quit on the stool or at least get stopped due to the doctor's advice as his eye was swollen shut from the damage that he was uh, taking. But he bounced back so successfully earlier this year by picking up a big win over Chidi and Jaquani in a fight that he was landing takedowns in the first round and then striking with Jaquani competitively in the second and third rounds to pick up the win that night. That was a close fight and a very questionable uh uh, game planning uh, from Derive in terms of wanting to strike with Anjuquani for the second and third round. Maybe it's something that he learned from the Buckley fight that maybe he expended his energy a little bit too much with the grappling and ultimately could not have anything to give in the second and third rounds with his grappling or even defensively, which is why he decided to you know, not use all of his energy trying to grapple and just did enough to eventually throw enough output and get his hand raised on the judges' scorecards. You got to wonder how that's going to work for him as he continues to take steps up in competition and try to get closer to the rankings in a place that he deserves to be. I will say, though, Derive is definitely not the fighter I expected uh, him to be when he made his UFC debut against Roman Kopilov, another fight where he won but looked a little bit sketchy in terms of actually how dominant he could be. On the flip side, we got the Iron Turtle, Jun Young Park, who's running a three-fight winning streak even after a controversial split-decision victory over Eric Anders. However, he left no doubt in people's minds in his next two matchups as he submitted Joseph Holmes and Dennis Chulian relatively easily. The Iron Turtle is one of my favorite fighters in the UFC because of his pace, pressure, and grinding style. He can go out there and strike with the best of them and land some good shots, and he was even close to finishing Gregory Rodriguez a couple fights back in a just absolute slugfest that Rodriguez somehow pulled out of his ass and still managed to get the win. But Park can even go out there and grapple his opponents to the mat and really wear on them and take over late in matchups. He's a great all-around fighter, not a wizard at anything specifically, but really good at putting everything together and utilizing his cardio to his advantage. Now, Derive, again, hasn't really impressed me the way that I thought he would after coming off the Contender Series. And I feel like Hardy is eventually going to be the big killer to him in terms of never making it into the rankings or even being close to title contention and i feel like a, a you know a, a matchup a stylistic clash like he has against the iron turtle this weekend is going to showcase the, those weaknesses once again i fully expect uh, drive to get some wrestling going in that first round but i think that park is going to continue to push a pressure in that first in that second round that's going to slow down drive and we could potentially see park even pick up a victory in the third round of this matchup I feel like, you know, obviously he's going to be at a wrestling disadvantage here, but if he can keep his activity level high, if he can keep his pressure high, he should be able to wilt and break Derive the later that this fight goes, land the more damaging strikes, and eventually get a finish of his home or take home a decision victory. I'm a little bit skeptical in terms of laying the chalk here as, you know, I, I think at best Park should be like minus 130, minus 150 if I want to pull the trigger on him. The last I checked, he was around that minus 170 range. But I still think that this is a fight that he can go out there and win. Just needs to stay safe early and then really start to take over. He may not be as successful in the striking realm as Joaquin Buckley was, but if he can mix in striking with clinching, with wrestling, and with a higher pace that Derive's not used to keeping up with, he should be able to take over and win this fight late. Give me either round three park or park by decision. That brings us to our main event of the evening, which goes down in the bantamweight division. And it's very important considering that the women's bantamweight champion just hung up the gloves, which leaves the title vacant. And we have 15-6 and six former bantamweight champion Holly Holm taking on 10-2-1 Myra Bueno Silva. Starting off on the Holly Holm side of things, she's coming off a dominant victory over Yana Santos last time around where she used her newfound grappling skills to go out there and control her opponent and get the victory. It's pretty cool to see a Holly Holm evolve her game from being a point-fighting kickboxer from earlier in her MMA career to now utilizing her size and her strength against her opponents and utilizing her grappling to get her wins. Obviously, at 41 years old, you expect her speed and her reflexes starting to slow down, but... Her physicality and strength is still all there and she's done a great job in terms of changing up her style to still be successful at this point in her career. We can see the work that she's been doing, especially with how comfortable she's starting to look on the mat. She does a great job in terms of mixing in takedowns behind her striking or even just being content with pushing her opponent up against the cage, utilizing her strength and keeping them in that position and then just chipping away with them with, uh, with damage to eventually get her hand raised. 
that fight against Caitlin Vieira, which was her last loss, was a very close fight that could have been scored in her favor as well. But I think she learned a big lesson in that matchup that she needs to make it look more dominant, especially if she's taking this grapple-heavy approach nowadays. Her opponent this weekend, Myra Bueno Silva, is a fighter that not a lot of people expected to see in a main event slot. However, she's on a three-fight winning streak, and the vacant bantamweight title just leaves a lot of openings for other fighters to come in and bring some fresh faces into the division and into title contention. She's finished two of her last three fighters uh, or opponents, the Stephanie Egger non-tap, phantom-tap armbar situation, and then that beautiful knee bar that she pulled off against Nina Landsberg. Funny thing, going into the Lena Landsberg fight, she had only attempted one takedown through her seven professional or seven UFC fights leading up to that point. But it was the Landsberg fight where we start, saw her start to sh- take, shoot for takedowns more and try to utilize her submission game a little bit more as well. At times, she's a little bit low volume, a little bit lackadaisical off her back as well, which allows opponents to grind her out and get ahead on her on numbers and eventually beat her by decision. There's only been two opponents that have been able to do that, but I believe that Bueno Silva really needs to have a little bit more urgency in her game, especially as she takes steps up in competition. But this is a giant step up in competition for her, from going from Lena Landsberg, who ended up hanging up the gloves that night, to Holly Holm, who's a former bantamweight champion. Can she successfully make that leap and be successful, or is she going to be sprung down a little bit and realize that she needs a little bit more experience before she takes that jump up in competition the big question mark here as to you know figuring out whether silva is going to win or if home is going to win is the durability and submission defense of home because we know that bueno silva will likely hit pretty hard and she'll probably land a couple big strikes but i think for the majority of this fight home is gonna use her grappling and her strength to put silva in uncomfortable positions up against the cage and even on the mat which is why i think that if silva does win this fight it probably comes by submission but i think that we've seen enough craftiness and veteran savvy from holly home that she'll likely be able to stay out of those bad positions i think she'll be able to do a good job in terms of using her striking to get the clinch game going and i think she'll opt to use more of a clinch heavy approach like she did against raquel pennington rather than looking to take silva to the ground and just maybe get caught in a submission like it's possible that happens but I feel like Holm will do a good enough job in terms of mixing in the ground, the clinch, and her striking well enough to defeat a you know a relatively lackadaisical Mauro Bueno Silva. Unless we see an urgency from Silva that we haven't seen in the past, I feel like this could be a spot where Holm can just go out there and cruise to win as she's used to been doing over her last couple of fights. Silva is dangerous, don't get me wrong. She's younger. She hits with some decent power, and she's dangerous with her jujitsu. But I feel like Holly Holm has good enough fight IQ to keep fights in a realm that she'll be safest, and I believe she's prepared well enough, especially for the threats that Silva presents. But I still think Holm, at 41 years old, can go out there and get wins against fighters of the level of Myra Bueno Silva, and she might even be able to beat people like Juliana Pena and Raquel Pennington at this age and maybe capture the bantamweight title again. Who knows? But it all starts this week, and if she can get her hand raised, and I think she does, I think she wins by decision. And there you guys go, breakdowns on every single fight for this week's UFC Vegas 77 card. There might be a Jack Della Maddalena fight announcement coming soon, but I wanted to get this breakdown out for you guys as soon as possible. I guess the only place you'll be able to find my Jack uh, breakdown is going to be on the Patreon as I'll update my best predictions article once that matchup becomes official. Don't know who his opponent is, but if they end up finding somebody for him, I'll uh, update my best predictions article. So if you want to see that, check that out. Um, but yeah, throughout the week, I got more content dropping for you guys. Tomorrow, aka Tuesday, I got the top three lock of the night candidates. Uh, you know, we, we went 3 0 last week. Uh, I, I'll be posting my lock. I've already, well, as of this recording releasing, I'll already have my lock of the night play or prediction posted on the Patreon. So if you want to see exactly what it is, check out the Patreon link in the description below. Otherwise, you can see who my top three candidates were for it, and you can make your own guess in the comment section. On Wednesday, I'll be, re- be releasing the first edition of the top three dog of the night prediction candidates. Uh, and again, that will be posted on the Patreon as to who the actual dog of the night is. But you'll get my top three selections and who I think should be deserving of that moniker. And then Thursday, Lucky Two-Step. Yes, baby, we finally hit it this, this past week and stopped the drought. And then Friday, the three best prop bets. Love every single one of you guys. You guys have been freaking awesome. Uh, yeah, let's kill it this week. And I'll see you guys again tomorrow for the top three Lock of the Night candidates. Peace.
last thing.